All right, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to be looking at an amazing portion of Scripture this morning where God puts words of wisdom for the raising of our families. And while you're turning there, I want to um, mention a few things to you this morning. We have uh, numbers of you who are visiting today. Thank you for coming. And uh, even as Pastor Brian was welcoming you, I'm so grateful that you're here with us this morning and that you got to be a part of what we're doing. I think you probably have picked up the fact that we love our children here and we're deeply committed to them. I think you've also picked up just from our singing today and from uh, even the comments that I made earlier that we are all broken people before the Lord. And uh, there's not a one of us, and we're going to see this in the text this morning, there's not a one of us who have not tasted of the brokenness of sin. There's not one of us that at some point or another have not ruined something that God has given to us. And and so we celebrate today with full hearts because God is in the business of restoring what sin broke. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. I want to thank you as well for the response that so many of you had to the series that we just finished, the four Sunday series that we had on radical generosity. What an incredible, powerful message from the Lord that worked in our hearts, my own included. Uh, You'll see at the end of our service today that we had an incredible offering last Sunday, and I want to thank you for being sensitive and for letting the Lord work in your life and in your heart. So many good things that God is doing. I did talk about last Sunday, we handed out one of these cards, and I really want you to take these cards. If you don't have one and you would like one, hold your hand up. We have uh, folks ready to just swing by and hand them to you, uh, but I'd like everybody to have one. Uh, every husband, every wife, every, uh, every uh, teen, in our, every college student, and I want you to take this, and I want you to pray this week, and next week we're going to ask you to bring these cards back. And uh, we're going to collect them. We don't want your name on the card. This is between you and the Lord. And you're asking God to do two things in your life. Number one, you're asking God, if you're not already doing this, God, would you help me to take the next step of obedience, even as I sat under the word for these Sundays, and I heard your plan for how you intend to do uh, your work and advance your gospel I want to take that first step, and I want to obey you, and I want to give you regularly, and, uh, and whether you do it weekly or biweekly or monthly, Lord, I want to be regular in my giving back to you a portion of what you have given to me. And that's step number one. Some of you don't know how that'll happen. You'll say, Lord, I, I'm looking at my budget. I have no idea how to make that happen. And part of that is coming to God and saying, God, you need to help me to do this. You have called me to this, and now you need to help me to do it. And then there's a second step. And and some of us who give regularly and who have taken that first step of obedience, maybe the Lord is going to move on our heart, and we would say to the Lord, Lord, I really need to take a step of faith, and I'm going to ask you for a specific amount that I would like to give beyond my regular giving. And maybe it's going to be a monthly amount or a weekly amount or or some one-time gift that you feel the Lord is laying on your heart. And you have the same question, Lord, I don't have a clue how this is going to happen. But Lord, if you'll supply that money, or if you'll help me to find places where I can sacrifice, then Lord, I will do it. And that's what the second line 
on the card is. And so let me encourage you to take that and pray about that. This is a great opportunity as a parent for you to say to your children, you know what, let's talk together about what God might want you to give. Maybe it's just a dollar a month. That's all it is. But it's way more than a dollar a month, isn't it? It's your son or your daughter learning that when you give to God, God is a generous and radical giver. God isn't taking our money. God is using that money to invest in us. And so this is a wonderful way for you to teach your children. Maybe you're a college student and you've never really given before. You, you give every once in a while, but you've never really been a disciplined giver. And maybe this is the time in your life as you sort of move from just being someone living in your mom and dad's home to really being someone who serves the Lord in your own right, that you would say, God, you know, this is the next step I need to take in my own walk with God. And so we're going to give you an opportunity this week to do that and to pray together. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, and we are going to address the topic, raising children who love God and follow Jesus. Raising children who love God and follow Jesus. And so I want to introduce this to you by acknowledging that we have participated in something together as a community of faith that is deeply precious and extremely powerful as we covenanted together with these parents uh, to help them and to go before the Lord with them as they desire to raise their children to love God with all of their heart and to follow God with all of their days. And those of us who have our own children sometimes wonder if this is even possible. Have you ever thought that? Lord, they didn't come with an instruction manual. What do I do? How do I go about doing something that that I can't even do in my own heart? How do I go about raising this image bearer, not just to know about you, but to actually know you? And not just to talk about you, and not just to know where to go in your Bible, but actually to love you and to engage with you on a personal level. How do I go about that? And the answer is words. Words are incredibly powerful things. They have immense power to impact, and they have immense power to shape life. Think about the power of words in your own life. Think about things that people have said to you. Think about things that have come into your life through comments people have made. And think about the immense power that words have to impact and shape lives. And that's especially true with our children. I actually have a little clip I'd like you to watch. It's about three minutes long. And I want you to see visually the the power of words to make impact. Take one. How are you? Good. I'm so glad to see you. At your house, what do you hear your mom and dad saying most often? Get off the couch. Come over and do the dishwasher. <laughs> oh, go clean your room. Oh, hurry up, hurry up. And you need to do your laundry. I'm not warning you again. Be quiet. Why? Because we're really loud. Who took this? Who ate that? Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? You're being disturbed. Yeah, like I need you clean your room, do your chores. My dad says no. That's like all I hear. Okay. And my mom says like, hurry up, what have you done productive today? To unload the dishwasher. 
clean the table to wash the dishes. Remember to bring your lacrosse stuff to lacrosse practice. Clean up your desk. How do you not find that? That was right there. What's the nicest thing somebody's ever said to you? I am funny and my teacher says I have a good imagination. Someone said I have like a really nice personality mm-hmm. and that I can be really respectful. Your smile is contagious. One of my friends said, like, you're the best person in the world. Really? How did that make you feel? Like somebody really cared about me. Yeah. My coach, I, I love him because yeah. even if we don't win or don't have a good mm-hmm. game, he'll be like, you guys did good. Mm-hmm. He'll tell us what we did best and what we need to work on. I like hearing good things about myself and someone else. Yeah. Has anybody ever said anything that hurt your feelings? Um, you're so obnoxious. Really? All the time. I get that maybe once a day. Those little comments stick with me all the time. Someone at my school said I wasn't good at like a certain sport we were doing for PE. It made me feel kind of sad and I should stop trying it. This kid said I was a waste of life. Oh, really? It's just no one's a waste of life in my opinion. That's right. What's the very favorite thing your mom and dad have said to you? That they're proud of me? Yeah. They say you're going to do great things one day. I love my uh, mom and dad, like, say I'm awesome and cool. Like, they love me. I did hear, like, good job, well done, congratulations, stuff like that. I think it's I love you. Really? I really like that. My mom says I'm special sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) This is I'm a really hard worker. Well, that must make you feel very valuable. It does. She says, like, I'm beautiful, smart, pretty, and stuff. Yeah. It makes me feel nice, and it makes me feel more confident and positive. My mom always tells me that, like, I'm the most determined, so it's always stuck with me, like, if I have a project, I just remember, like, I'm the most determined one. Mm-hmm. If I actually want to get this done, I can do it. My dad tells me very frequently, and my mom, my mom tells me so much, I'm glad you were my son. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Words have power, a lot of power. You know, I I watched that clip some time ago, and it really impacted me, and I thought to myself, how have the words we have said to one another, and how the words we say to our children, have they communicated the most important thing, and that is that God loves them. That's a stunning thing, that last line in... The clip was very powerful to me. Words have power. Now, if human words have this kind of power, may I suggest something to you? God's words have even more power to impact and shape lives. So as we think about raising up the next generation of children, our own, to love God and follow Jesus for all the days of their life, there are words God has given. And the passage I directed attention to in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, is one of those places where God gives us words that are intended to help us shape the next generation. They come at a time in Moses' life where he is at the end of his journey. He has been walking around in the wilderness for 40 years, taking one generation of Israelites out of Egypt and another generation of Israelites into the land that God had promised to give to their fathers and to their forefathers. 
And it all started with a man named Abraham who received the initial promise. And you know the story, you know your Bible well enough to know that this journey that began in the book of Exodus 15 was actually an 11-day journey that turned into a 40-year trip. That is one really bad wrong turn, right? You can tell the Israelite men were driving because their wives would have said immediately, you took a wrong turn and would have gotten right back on the right path. But they wandered around for 40 years. And here's the point. Moses had witnessed the loss of an entire generation. And he didn't want to see another generation lost. And so he comes to them with words that God has given. And you can see that it is these words. He is to teach them. And by these words, they will live. And so these words have an amazing place in our own life. Even though we're not national Israel, we can learn from what God gave to them and and, and from what God put before them. And so that's my goal this morning as we desire that we not lose the generation that God has given to us. And maybe we're here this morning and we're like Moses. We have ourselves lost the way. How do we come back to the path? And so let's begin by observing some things about these incredible words that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And the first thing I want to observe with you is that there is a foundational reality that supports all of this instruction. There is a foundational reality that supports all of this instruction. And the foundational reality is the stunning truth that the God of heaven and earth voluntarily initiated a love-based covenant relationship with this nation. Everything that we're about to talk about that comes out of these nine verses comes out of a foundation that is shocking. Moses is not giving all of these words to this generation in order to kind of clean them up and sort of put them on the right path so that if they just figure out how to live according to these words, maybe God will love them. Maybe God will like them. Maybe God will act on their behalf. Everything that comes out of these nine verses is actually coming from a very different direction. These words are not there for Israel in order that somehow they might persuade God to love them. These words are there for a very different reason. These words are there because God has already loved them. That's the most stunning reality. Listen to what we see in Deuteronomy 7. If you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy 6, keep your finger there, but look at Deuteronomy 7. And and just listen to what Moses says in verse 6 of that passage. You are a people holy to the Lord. That word holy is not talking about their moral nature. We're going to find out that the people standing there in front of Moses have acted in some pretty horrific ways. All you have to do is read the book of Numbers, and you'll find out very quickly that whatever this word holy means 
It is not talking about perfect. It is not talking about sinless. It is not talking about people who have never messed up or, or ruined anything. These, this word holy has a different context. It means that you have been set apart and chosen by God for himself. And whatever God decided to do in choosing you was not motivated by what he saw that was attractive in you. God didn't choose you because you were righteous or because you were holy. And he's going to make this point. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples, all the nations who are on the face of the earth. And here's verse 7. Here's the stunning thing. It was not because you were more in number than any other nation that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For actually, you were the smallest. You were the fewest of all the nations. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Know you, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Look at verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. This is a stunning paragraph, isn't it? Moses is looking at these people and he's saying, you occupy an amazing position among the nations. You are the one group of people that God chose to be his own special and treasured possession. And it wasn't because he looked down and saw how big you were as a nation or how mighty you were or how righteous you were or how holy you were because you were none of those things. He chose you for one reason. He chose you because he loved you. And I want to say something to everybody in this room. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what you've done or haven't done. But the reason God loves you is not because you were more righteous than the person sitting next to you or because you were more unrighteous than the person sitting behind you. The reason that God loves you is because he decided to love you. And you know what else? The reason you love God if you love God today, is because God loved you. John put it this way. We love him because he first loved us. Everything that Moses is going to talk about when it comes to the commandment, the entire law of God that is made up of statutes and regulations, everything that he's going to talk about is not designed to make Israel more lovable and more acceptable to God. They have already been accepted. God is not in the business of making you perform to earn his love. We perform because we are loved. And if we get that wrong, we crush our souls. We put our, ourselves under burdens that we were never designed to bear. And if you miss that point and you raise your children in a way that, that somehow you communicate to them, either by how you talk to them or by how you respond to them, that in order to be loved by you, they have to perform or they have to be acceptable in your sight. You have completely missed the grace of God. 
There is a foundational reality that supports everything that is going on. And then the second thing that I want you to notice back in Deuteronomy 6 is the supreme importance of this instruction. Whatever's going on here in chapter 6 is important because God is saying it. Notice how Moses starts in verse 1. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules. The word commandment in verse 1 is singular. And whatever this commandment is, it involves statutes and rules. So it's not like there's just one thing. It's got, it's one thing with many parts. In other words, he's talking about the entire law of the Lord. Someone says that this this blessed man we meet, his delight is in the what? Law of the Lord. And in this law does he meditate day and night. And that law of the Lord has many parts. This commandment that we see in verse 1 is the same commandment that you see up in verse 31 of chapter 5 where Moses says, stand here by me, or God says to Moses, stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them. And it's the same commandment at the end of verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 25 that will be righteousness for us if we are to do all this commandment. And so what's coming now is the singular law of God in all of its parts. This is significant because of its source, but it's also important because one day there will be an accountability that you may do them. The Lord commanded me to teach you these rules and these statutes that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess. Now, this commandment that we're reading about in verse 1 we find out something about in chapter 4. This commandment, whatever it is, Moses says is going to be your wisdom. This is going to be your wisdom in the sight of all the nations. This is what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Here you are, and, and you, Israel, have been given a wisdom. You have been taught by God how the world works, every nation in the world of Israel's day, had its own wisdom. Explain how the world worked. Israel had a wisdom. Egypt had a wisdom. The Canaanites had a wisdom. Assyria had a wisdom. The Babylonians had a wisdom. And and, and by that wisdom, they navigated life. It was, in essence, what we would call today a worldview. We want to know how the world works. And if you lived in Egypt, you were really worried about the way the world worked because if the Nile didn't rise that year, bad stuff was going to happen. If your whole economy was based on agriculture and that river didn't rise, people were going to go hungry and people were going to actually die. And so it was super important for you to figure out how to get that Nile to rise. And so when it didn't rise, you had to figure out what do we do? How do we, how do we change the outcome of of what's going on in our world. And so you would run to the people who knew the wisdom and who had figured out how to influence whatever gods were around so that we could get the Nile back. And if you lived in Canaan, you had your own wisdom about how to get the rain coming when you need it. You worshipped a guy named Baal. And he had a consort named Ashtaroth. 
If you lived in Babylonia or if you lived in Assyria, you had your own ways of figuring out how the world worked. And there was one nation to whom God had given the actual truth. He had given them a wisdom. And this wisdom is in this Torah that he has given to them. And when they live by this wisdom, the other nations are going to watch what goes on in their nation and they're going to be astonished. They're going to go to Israel. How in the world do you get that? I mean, how do you go? How do you guys always get rain? How come your crops are always bumper crops? How come when, when enemies come against you, they never win? They never defeat you? How in the world do you get that? And Israel says, well, our God. Our God. Our God has given us wisdom. He's given us a Torah. By the way, when you raise your children to know and love God and you use the wisdom, other people are going to go, how, how in the world did you do that? How did you navigate those teen years? Because they about destroyed us. How, how did you figure out how to get past that obstacle? How did you deal with that? Where did you get that wisdom? The answer is, God gives the wisdom. We didn't do this ourselves. This wisdom that God is giving is extremely important, and it has an objective. Look at verses 2 and 3. Here's why God has given this wisdom. He's not given the wisdom just so they'll enjoy life. Here's why he gave them the wisdom, that you may fear the Lord. That term, fear the Lord, in the Old Testament is sort of code language for what you and I would know in the New Testament as being born again. So that you would come to have a real personal relationship with the God of heaven. You and your son and your son's son. That's the goal. This wisdom isn't just for you. It's for your son or your daughter. And it's not just for them. It's for their son. And it's for their daughters. And the reason that I'm giving this wisdom to you is to help them fear the Lord, to have a right view of God and a right relationship with him, to help them obey the Lord, to live and exhibit right behavior in the, in the eyes of the Lord, and to help them prosper before the Lord. Look at verse 3, that it might go well with you and that you might multiply greatly and that you might enjoy God's blessing bountifully. And in verse 2, that all of this would happen to you as you dwell in the land that God is bringing you to for many days. You could say it this way. These words were designed by God to help a new generation worship him authentically. Isn't that what you want for your kids? that they would worship God authentically, that they would serve him acceptably, that they would represent him accurately in their lives, and that they would enjoy him abundantly. Do you realize that many, many people who claim to know Jesus Christ never enjoy God? They never enjoy God. God was not just interested in you obeying him, and he was not just interested in you following him and bringing sacrifices and offerings to him. 
He wanted you to love him, and he wanted you to enjoy him. The Westminster divines define the chief end of man, and part of the end, part of the goal that God has for men is that we would enjoy God forever. Let me ask you a question. The kids that live in your house that you're raising to be lovers of God, do they know that you enjoy God as a parent? I know they know that you love God, and I know they know that you believe God, and I know they know that you pray to God, and I know they know that you read his Bible. That's not my question. Do they know that you actually love God and that you enjoy him? Because if you don't enjoy God, why in the world would they want to follow him? And that's why Moses is so key in what he says to the Israelites. Notice the third thing we see in the text. There is a central truth that brings all of this to bear. And it's in verses 4 and 5. These 16 words in the Hebrew text define the heart and the soul of God's covenant relationship with his people. These are known in the Jewish world as the Shema. How many of you have ever heard of the Shema? The Shema comes from a word a Hebrew word that means to hear, to listen, to embrace, to submit. Hear, O Israel. It's repeated many, many times in the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is going to stand up in front of the people and he's going to say, hear, O Israel, and he's going to give them some significant truth. Well, here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, you have the central truth of the faith that God is giving to his people. Hero Israel. Today, it is repeated three times every day by Orthodox Jews. And it has a central reality. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You say, what in the world does that mean? Is that talking about the trinity of God and the indivisible nature of God is talking about the fact that we have a triunity, but he's really one God. Is that what's going on here? And there are many, many ways in which that phrase actually speaks into how we view God and how we relate to God. But let me give you just three this morning. Here is one of the main things that comes out of that. The God in view the God that Moses is talking about, the, the God that he's calling Israel to understand is the God who is over everything in heaven and he is over everything on earth. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign creator and he is the providential sustainer of everything that goes on under heaven. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This God who is Lord over all is our God. He has entered into a personal relationship with Israel. And, and the word for that is covenants. All through the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis, and certainly in the book of Exodus, and now in the book of Deuteronomy, this God who is sovereign over everything, this God who is the creator of everything that is in heaven and everything on earth, this God who rules it all and who sustains it all, 
has entered into a covenant relationship with this group of people. And the word covenant, don't think of it like we would use our English word contract, because contracts are sort of, sort of cold and lifeless. Think of it as a vow. There is a vow that God is making, and, and there is relational intimacy that comes with this vow. God is committing himself to do things for these people. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy, he has done amazing things. He said to Abraham, the father of all of this nation, there's a day coming when you're going to have so many descendants they can't even be numbered. By the time we get to Exodus, that's happened. And in Exodus chapter 2, this multiplied nation full of image bearers who are being brutalized by the Egyptian taskmasters. Moses says, I want you to remember back to that iron furnace. That's how he describes it. And I want you to remember what God did. God redeemed you from that. God delivered you from that. And he did it before he gave you commandment one. It's not like God said, okay, we're going to have a deal here, and here's the contract. I got these ten words, these ten commandments, and, uh, and they're like uh, all about me and all about you. And so here's the line. You sign these, and then we can talk about deliverance from the iron furnace. We can figure out how I can get you out of here, but you've got to sign up here first. That isn't how it worked. Before there was ever laws and rules and commandments, God said, I remember my covenant. I remember my relationship. I remember my vow to Abraham. And you know what? I'm getting you out of this mess. I didn't make you for Egypt. I didn't make you for the slave pit. I didn't make you for the iron furnace. I made you for me. How many times do we try to fix things before we go to God? Man, I blew it. I ruined this. I broke that. I messed this up, and, uh, and now i got to go to the Ten Commandments, and i got to work really hard. I'm signing my life away on Command 1, Command 2, Command 3, Command 4. Not sure about Command 5. I'm going to try really hard. And Command 6, oh, and Command 7, that's a tough one. I, I blew that one, but I'm going to work hard on that one. I'm going to get my little band, and I'm going to pop it eight times every time I get tempted. And, and, and God, if I agree to this, maybe, maybe you could just deliver me one more time. You ever, are you ever been there? God says, I don't work that way. And the central truth here is this. I chose you when you were in that pit. I made the vow to you before you even knew about commandments. You don't keep the commandments, so I'll get you out of that mess. I get you out of that mess so you can keep the commandments. It's a very different perspective, isn't it? So what are we supposed to do? Moses says, this God is your God. And, and by the way, he is the only God there is. He is exclusive. He's the only God, and he demands exclusive allegiance. Don't worship anything else. This is, this is why we don't make idols. Why? Because idols demand our worship. You know, whether you lived in the Old Testament and you had a little stone idol or you live today and it's in your garage, parked. 
and it's your idol. We are designed by God to worship. You're going to worship something. You're going to worship yourself. You're going to worship your passions. You're going to worship your desires. You're going to worship whatever you give yourself to. And God said, I want all of your worship to come to me. This is the central truth. The God who loves us has one thing that he wants from us, and that is this. Notice how he puts it in verse 5. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. We need to love him personally and exclusively and completely and intensely with every part of our being. This is not God carving us up into these different parts like we, we got these three separate components and man, I'm checking out my heart and that's going well, but my mind isn't going well. He's talking about who you are as a person with everything internal that this is, this is coming out of your heart, it's your mind, and it is something that you do with all of your muchness. That's the idea behind strength. You are to love God with everything you have and with all that you are. Your entire being, you were created to love God. You will never raise children to love God unless they see that in you. I will never raise children. They will never experience what love is like from me to them if I first don't know what love is like from God to me. And when I experience God's love, there's only one response when I truly get that love, and that is for me to love him in return. And then there is a personal response that God wants from us in all of this. Notice verses 6 and 7. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Interesting term. God wrote them down on tables of stone and and gave them to Moses. And Moses brings these two tablets down and they're etched in stone, these ten commandments, this covenant that God made. And Moses said, if it just stays on the stone, it does you no good. What's on the stone has to become on your heart. And that's why at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses shakes his head and he says, I I can't do the one thing that you need. I can give you the tables of stone, but I can't open your ears and I can't open your eyes and I can't cause your heart to respond. You need a better prophet, a greater prophet than me. And one day God's going to send him to you. That's why Jeremiah looked forward and Ezekiel looked forward to the day that God would change your heart and that he would take his law and not write it on tablets of heart or of stone or on your stony heart, but that he would turn your heart and he would give you a heart that is soft. He would give you a heart that is alive. That's what happened when you got saved, by the way. God quickened you in Ephesians chapter 2. You would never have responded to God if God hadn't first done that. God had to open your eyes so that you would see the glory of Jesus or the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus. That's why Moses can say from God, I chose you before you ever chose me. And so we are to put these words on our heart. This means unreserved devotion. 
This, this looks like undivided allegiance. This looks like unrestrained affection. This looks like unqualified obedience. You want to know what it looks like with skin on? Look at Abraham. Unreserved devotion. Undivided allegiance. Unrestrained affection. Unqualified obedience. Way before Moses was ever born. Before there was a law, there was faith coming out of love. We get it the other way around. We want our kids to get law first. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what God says you're going to do. And, and there's a place for that. Please don't misunderstand me. But if all they get is law, which they need, and they never understand that the law rests on this mountain of grace, and this mountain of love, we're going to turn these kids, we're going to actually crush them under a weight they were never designed to bear. These words will be on your heart. They have to be internalized. They ought to shape who we are and what we value and how we live. And after we've internalized them parentally, we instruct our children with them. You shall teach them diligently to your children. The word diligently in verse 7 is the idea of intentionally and carefully and thoughtfully carving them into their hearts. Just like God carved something into tables of stone, Moses says, internalize that in your heart. Let God carve them into your heart, and then you carve them into the heart of your children. Now, how in the world am I going to do that? And that's the fifth thing we see here. That there is something in this text in verses 7 through 9 that is designed to help us raise our children to fully embrace this instruction. And so what is it? Well, look at verse uh, 7 in the text. Uh, You shall teach them diligently to your children. There's the idea of this repeated and and ongoing conversation that you have with them where you are helping them to know about the love of God, you are helping them to know about the truth of who God is and what he is like, and then you are carving into their heart what what, what he desires of people who have experienced his love. You shall teach these words intentionally. There is careful, thoughtful, intentional repetition. All throughout the growing years of your kids, they ought to know that God loves them. The most powerful thing on that little clip we saw earlier was the last young man who said, the thing that impacts me the most is is to know that my parents are glad that I'm their kid. You know something? On your worst day, when when you've messed up and you've broken the commandment for the 49th time, and you've messed up for the millionth time, God is still glad you're his kid. I'm not trying to spiritualize this, but when Satan stands in front of God in heaven like he did in Job's 1 and 2, he's going to point out every flaw. See, look what they did down there. See what, what Pastor Sam did down there? And he's a pastor. And this is what he did. And God says, yeah, but he's my kid. 
I'm so proud. I love him. You know, that just changes it, doesn't it? Because, man, when I mess up and I think I've disappointed God and I just want to crawl in the hole, the last place I want to go. I mean, think about how many times as a kid you went to camp and, and man, if you're going to get right with God, you got to make your call and you make your call and you run up there and you throw your little stick in the fire and it's great for about three days. And then you blow it again. You're like, oh, man, where's my stick? And where's the fire? I got to do it again. And after about 10 times, what happens is like, I already burned a small forest. And this hasn't worked. And pretty soon you're like, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll just be content to sit in the back row. God's embarrassed, but he's got to let me in because I prayed the prayer in Jesus' name. It's like God, God's probably up there going, I got to let you in, kid, but you're in the back. And don't say anything because I'm embarrassed. That isn't how God works at all. Teach this intentionally. Talk about this constantly. Look at verse 7, what God says here. You shall talk about this when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, where are you supposed to do this? Everywhere, in all the places and spaces of your life. When you sit in your house or when you're walking out in the way, in our day and age, it would be when you're riding around in the car, when you're on a trip, when you're sitting down to eat breakfast, when you're, when you're walking out the door. Find a way to talk about God. Find a way to talk about this incredible reality that is ours. When are we supposed to do this? From the time you get up until the time you lie down. In other words, all throughout the day, you're supposed to do this in all the places and spaces, and you're supposed to do this in all the times and circumstances. In the good times, in the bad times, talk about these words constantly. And then look at verses 8 and 9. Model these words consistently. Let your love for God and your obedience to, your word, to his word shape you. Bind them on your arm. Let them guide what you value. Bind them on your forehead between your eyes. Let your love for God shape your home. Write it on the doorposts of your house. Let it shape the way you live in your community and your city. Put it on the gates of your city so that when people run into you and they run into your home and they walk into your community, they know one thing. These people love a God who loves them. These people love a God who loves them. How do you raise children who love God and follow Jesus? You love God and you follow Jesus. And then you talk about it. Man, when you blow it, what a great God who forgives us. Talk about that. When, when God disciplines you for something, talk about that. What a loving father who, who isn't going to just let me blow up my life. And son, you need to know that. Sweetheart, you need to know that. What a great God. When you get a blessing, when something good happens in your life, God is, God is always good, and he's always good all the time. And when you talk about God, and your goal is to actually get your kids to love God, and not just to know God or know about God, it changes everything. And that's our heart. And that's why Moses said you take these words about God and you teach them 
to your children. And I can't teach my children something that I myself have not embraced. Would you bow your heads this morning as we pray together? As I was working this out in my own life this week, there were just moments where, you know, you have those moments as a pastor sometimes when you're looking at something and you feel utterly hypocritical standing up and even talking about it. And maybe that's the way you feel as a mom or a dad today. You're like, Pastor, I cannot believe I, I haven't been doing this. This is so simple. It's so clear. But I haven't been doing it. You know what? It's never too late ever to start doing right. It's never too late ever to start doing right. You might say, you know what, Pastor, my kids are, are raised and, and I wish I'd, have, wish I'd have done this when they were young. It's never ever too late to start talking to your kids about the beauty of God and about the truth of God. Can you imagine the impact on your grown son or your grown daughter who's wondering about God when they see a mom or a dad and their lives are radically transformed in their 70s? Can you imagine the impact? What happened, mom? I mean, I grew up in your home. You were never like this. Let me tell you, son, let me tell you what happened. God got hold of your mom's heart, and I repented. God got hold of your dad's heart, and I repented before the Lord, and it is glorious. Can you imagine the impact on that of that in your grown children's life? You know, it's never too late because God makes everything beautiful in its time. It's never too late to do right. It's never, there's never a wrong time to repent. There's never a wrong time to come back to God and say, God, I need you to repair what I broke. There's never a wrong place. And so this morning as I pray, that may be what we need to do this morning. Some of us just need to say, Lord, I, I just need you to do a work in my heart. I don't love you this way. Maybe you feel like you've just blown your life up and you have zero credibility. Can I just give you a little clue? You never had credibility. None of us ever had credibility. Our only credibility is Jesus. So run to him and say, Lord, would you parent me so I can parent the image bearers that you have given me? Lord, we come weary, broken, Some of us ruined. Some of us have been ruined by our self-righteousness and our legalism. Others of us have been ruined and broken by our unrestrained desires. But we're all broken and marred. And we just cannot believe that you love us. But you do. So would you give us a sense of that today? Would that reality so overwhelm us that we can't help but be changed by it? And Lord, as you love us and as you redeem us and restore us, would you help us talk about that to our kids? Because they're going to need it. And Lord, would you do in their hearts what you're doing in ours? Lord, we are powerless to change our hearts. You have to change them, and we're powerless to change the hearts of our kids. So we're asking you to change our kids' hearts. Lord, we know that you can do this. 
And we thank you that your word is how you do it. And so, Lord, help us to embrace what you've said here today for our life, for our marriages, and for our homes. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.